0: That's serious. Whoa, Wade, you're the man. Um, so I'm wondering if you'd be okay reading the text. Yeah. Would that be all right? Let's do it. So, uh, so we're going to read our teaching text, and uh, you can either There's you can use the slide if you want. It's probably easier for you, is it? Sure. Yeah, we can do it. And then um, uh, he's going to pray for me.
1: Okay, so Mark 12, starting with uh, verse 8. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is the good news of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so, Lord, we thank you that you always speak to us and that you're always so eager for us to listen. So, today, my prayer is um, to open our ears. um, Give us uh, the ability to listen to what you have for us out of this text from your servant Gordy. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Awesome. So if you're just joining us, we've been going through a teaching series called Sacred Practices, particularly in, uh, with a focus on uh, discerning our true and our false self, which is language we've been working with. It's not language you will find in Scripture, but it's implied throughout Scripture from beginning to end. And uh, we've, been, we've been working on that, talking about that. And today we want to look at the theme of the religious false self because that's probably no more toxic and deceptive way that the false self will emerge in our lives that we have to be aware of. And um, <clears throat> it's ironic to me that this tirade that Jesus leveled at the religious leaders... Was, it, was at the very people who had been appointed by God to represent Yahweh, to represent God on the earth. And when this religious system had just, in, it, in its full bloom, for lack of another word, came to its fruition, it, it was the most anti-God of anything that Jesus encountered on earth. It was the biggest problem he had. Uh, that God himself would come, that God would come in the very system that he had ordained through Moses years before now was a, the total antithesis of God. That should serve as a warning for us today who claim to represent God, who, or, or at least desire to, I don't know how much I claim to, but I I certainly desire to um, represent God. And there are particular hazards of religion. There are religious hazards when it comes to representing God. And it has to do with our, our false self that still sneakily gets in there. Just when we think, you know, we've been delivered from our sin and rescued, as we sang about. We find out that the thing we need rescue from more than anything is our religion. <laughs> oh, So, maybe to help launch this a little bit, it, um, Henry Nouwen tells the story about Michelangelo. Some of you have heard this story. Who was working hard on making a carving out of marble. And as he worked hard carving and chiseling and cutting, a little child was watching him, and all the child could see was nothing more than just chips of marble flying everywhere, and left and right, and the child had no idea what was happening, but about two weeks later, the child returned and saw this, and so this large and powerful lion was standing in the place where the marble once stood, so with great wonder, the little child ran up to the Michelangelo and said, how did you know? There was a lion in the marble. And of course the answer to that was Michelangelo saw the lion in his heart. He saw. And and seeing has been a big part of this series, hasn't it? We've been talking about in the Gospels, Jesus seeing was so important and often prefaced such amazing things in miracle and we miracles. So if if you will, the the marble is the false self. And the the architect or the artist is God. And but he works with us in spiritual practices as we engage in spiritual practices, not trying to become better or different or become ourselves on our own, but cooperating with God we more and more the false self is chipped away and and we connect with who we really are but that chipping is hard and it's painful and probably the most difficult chips to chip away is these religious things man I thought you know after I came to Christ as a teenager that man I had it, I'd sorted it all out and then religion came along so what happens there? Well, first of all, let's keep in mind the importance of seeing, and I, you know, it's been a while since I've had a grandfather episode with you guys, so let's not wait too long, right? This is my granddaughter, Hannah, and she's celebrating her eighth birthday a few months ago, and uh, uh, a couple of months ago, just not long after her birthday in late August, and I think it was in September... Uh, I found out she had been enrolled in ballet school, and she's been in dance school before. And, um, you know, different uh, acrobatic circus, things like this. But uh, Dee and Marcus enrolled her in, in a ballet school. And I got the privilege. I was asked, because of their schedule, I was asked to be the first person to take her to her new ballet school. And I felt so honored at the invitation. I got to be the first one to take her. So I, you know, I went over, picked her up from school, and it was right after school. And, and there was a chauff- chauffeur, put her in the back seat, you know, got her strapped in. And we're driving down, and I'm so excited. This is her first day in ballet school. And I'm driving down to Naimo, and she's pretty quiet there in the back seat. And uh, I realized things weren't as well as I thought they were supposed to be for Hannah. So I, I said, what's the matter, honey? And she said, oh, I don't feel very good. I said, well, why not? She said, I don't know. I just, and I, I, I had to probe a little bit, but I began to realize that she was quite nervous. That it, you know, it, it, there was a lot of pretty accomplished ballerinas around there. And, And I guess it was a pretty prestigious school, which I didn't know. And so I realized there was anxiety that was going on. So I said, honey, it's going to be great. It's going to be good. And without a beat, she said to me, Grandpa, you don't know that. You don't know that. And it was just like this passion came out of her. Like, you don't know it's going to be good. How can you say that? And... I must say that after 40 years of pastoral ministry, all my wisdom went out the door. I didn't know what to say. Because she was right. I didn't know. Maybe it'd be a disaster. Right? So I don't know. I mumbled something about, well, Grandpa's praying for you, and I'm trusting, we're trusting God, it's going to be good, and... It just felt so inadequate, and the only thing I could think to do, and, I, okay, don't tell the cops, okay, don't tell the police, I did this. But I had to keep one hand on the steering wheel, and then I, I can hardly tell you this, but I had to reach back and take her by the hand. And I said, just hold my hand. And so all the way down to Naimo Street and up Kingsway over towards Earls over there, I just held her hand, and it was the only thing I could offer, it was the only thing. So I got her there, and I and, uh, got her signed in, and I was in the waiting room, waiting for her, and was waiting for her when she came out, and we drove home, and I said, well, how was it? And I was waiting for her, yeah, it was great, but it was kind of a mixed review. She said, well, it was okay, you know, it was, it was kind of new but we found out within a couple of weeks that she'd been uh, signed up for the, the uh, Moscow Ballet's Great Russian Nutcracker, which was last uh, Saturday at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. And I thought, well, that's kind of a cute little thing. We'll go. Well, I couldn't believe it. Of course, Grandma and Grandpa signed up for this right away, booked her tickets. And um, she was a mouse in the, baller- in the Nutcracker and uh, I, I, we didn't realize that her, her dance studio is the, the, uh, the people that founded it are graduates from the Moscow Ballet and so the connection was is that the Moscow Ballet takes this all over the world and what they do is they connect with young protégés through their graduate program and it's just a beautiful model I think of mentoring and training because these young ballerinas get to uh, perform with the, the top you know, uh, ballet dancers in the world. So it was, it was a it was a great great opportunity, great mentoring model. We bought our tickets, had a great time, and of course this is the closing act. There, I was shocked. I mean, there, there was thousands of people there. It was kind of a, I really this is a big deal. <laughs> I'm a bit clued out on this kind of stuff. In fact, I as we got out of the parking lot, I heard hi, Gordy, and here one of the pastors' wives from the Penticton uh, from, from one of our BC vineyards was was coming and. Yeah, so so it was it was it was really cool, but at the she got up at six thirty in the morning that day, she performed at two o'clock. Then she performed at six o'clock, and so this is about nine o'clock, and she's just done. Hannah was just done, and my favorite moment of the whole thing of this whole episode, and the reason for telling you this whole story, is I had this moment with her where I picked her up and held her and she put her cheek next to mine. And uh, this wasn't the incident, this is another pic, but just kind of that kind of intimacy. She put her cheek right up to mine and I said, I, I, okay, I, I'm sorry. But I said, who, who took you to your first ballet LA lesson? <laughs> 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 and she says, you did, Grandpa. And I said, what did I tell you? You said it would be good. And was I right? Yes, Grandpa, you were right. But what was so powerful for me is that transcending um, performance, transcending whether it was good or not, was this human connection. And this declaration for Hannah that really is God's declaration for all of us that regardless of how good or bad I do, I am not alone, I am loved. I am worthy of being loved, I'm beloved, and all will be well. All will be well. So, of course, I want us to carry that because that's the lion in the marble. That's the core of who we are. That's the the foundation of our identity. But the marble covers that with this false self business that happens when we don't believe we're beloved, when we don't believe that God is good, then we believe a lie. We believe that somehow we're inadequate and somehow we have to achieve. We have to uh, strive to become, to overcome the sense of shame or inadequacy that we feel. We forget that we're beloved children of God. And so as Henry Nouwen said, we start to believe that I am what I have or I am what I have achieved or I am what others think about me. There was a very, very uh, graphic bullying story that came out this week in the news from Nova Scotia where a group of teens uh, were bullying this disabled boy, 14 years old, and it was a mixed group of boys and girls, and there's the, the newspaper picture had a, picture where they'd forced this disabled boy to lay in a stream and they made him a human footbridge and they were walking over him. And, and it's actually a picture of a 14-year-old girl who's walking on his back. And of course it came out on social media and, and so the kids were apologizing him. They were going to his home and apologizing to him in person. And one of the apologies is where this girl said, I, that is not who I am. That was exactly the phrase she used. I'm so sorry that I did that to you. That is not who I am. So even in the world, there's this understanding of this conflict between what I do with who I really am on the inside. And it's because of this lack of marrying. We forget who we are. We don't feel beloved. So we have to push other people down to make ourselves more powerful. And one of the worst ways we do that is in religion. Eugene Peterson said that, and who recently passed away, is that one of the greatest ways we can lose our soul is in religious activity and ministry. Because it looks so much like God. It looks so godly. And so we have to watch for the religious ways that the false self kicks in. And so Jesus, of course, warns about he kind of condenses his Matthew sermon about watch out for the teachers of the law watch out for these evangelical pastors huh? no seriously that that was probably the closest thing in that day to an evangelical pastor watch out for them they know the Bible really well they like to walk around in flowing robes that's a the Greek word is stole which means uh, you know like the, the the clothing of the elite. They like, you know, all those letters behind their name and to be called rabbi, and they like to have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. So what is that? That's the false self. It's the false self taking on a religious form. And uh, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Most scholars believe that they they would they would take advantage of the vulnerable because a woman who was a widow in that culture was extremely vulnerable, much more vulnerable generally than today, because of the patriarchy of the society. And so these, these religious leaders would take advantage of these widows with any inheritance that they had left, and they would offer these extended prayers that would ensure blessing and protection for them for a fee. Right? Does that ring a bell, by the way? Anywhere? (laughs) I I remember Bob Mumford saying, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he paused and then he goes, and so are the scribes and the Pharisees. (laughs) Okay, I I digress. Um, So... You know, I think one of the problems is that the the Christian church for the first 300 years didn't have a lot of problems with this because we were so marginalized. We were persecuted. We were fed to the lions. It was dangerous and hazardous to be a Christian for 300 years. But when Constantine became emperor, it became politically expedient to become a Christian because there were so many Christians. It was just politically, you know, it's like somebody saying... You know, I think I'll become an evangelical Christian in the U.S. Because it's politically expedient. It was kind of similar back in 300 A.D. And so uh, the problem was the church married the empire. And the church became allied in bed with political power. And it gave birth to what we know today as the, um, the, the Inquisition. The uh, Crusades. Bless God. Let's attack those Muslims, and if they don't give their lives to Jesus, we'll, you know, we'll do away with them. Uh, and by the way, in the middle of that, Saint Francis of Assisi, bless his heart, took a little boat across the Mediterranean, became friends of the Muslim Sultan of Egypt, and even though the Muslim Sultan of Egypt never became a Christian, they were great friends till the day of his death. So thank God there was. Uh, there there were exceptions to this. And there have always been exceptions to this terrible story. There's been exceptions all through the the misrepresentation of God that's then happened through Christianity as a result. So so that's where colonialism came from. Colonialism and the church being in bed with colonialism. It's just heartbreaking. The the work we have to do uh, to undo the damage of colonialism and how that's been... Uh, uh, lumped in with Christianity, that came from this. Residential schools came from this, right? So, no wonder Jesus really, really railed at them, right? So, and what does it look like in our day and age? Well, all of a sudden, in church life, size matters. Size really matters. Sung tang Ra, who, by the way, I've been enjoying reading non-white male theologians over the last year. So I've been reading African-Americans, First Nations, reading a Korean-American by the name of Song chung Ra. And he talks, he's, he's, he, he, he writes a book called The Next Day Evangel- Evangelicalism, and it makes you really uncomfortable if you're a white male. But it's so needed. I just go, ow, ow, ow. But I need this. Yes. Ow! It's, you know what I feel? It's that chisel. That's what I feel is happening. Because I realize how much of my Christianity is actually dominated by white supremacy. But when you're swimming in an ocean of it, you don't see it. You don't know it. And I hate to make you feel uncomfortable, but look around. How many of us are non white is it possible, and I, and I don't want to make you feel bad, but I do want to make you feel in a uncomfortable in a godly way, is it possible that we are blind to some things? So, of course, God always starts with the pastor, so he's been kind of chiseling and knocking as I'm reading this guy. But he talks about the ABCs of church life in North America, attendance, buildings, and cash. Size matters, right? Or to put it another way, the three B's. Budgets, baptisms, and bums in the pew. (laughs) He doesn't pull any punches, this guy. But he talks about this. I'll show you one way the church growth movement, which came out of the 60s. And it was this, this study they did where they find that churches really grow with homogeneity. You know what homogeneity is? Where we all look the same. And you know what it did? It produced a racism. Right in, in what was supposed to be evangelism. Produced a racism where churches, you have the Chinese church over here, you have the white church over here, you have the Spanish church over here. And I'm not against that, but that's not the heart of the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus came to bring us. We know that. But we find all these intellectual rationalizations for the religious false self. So then, he talks about how they devoured widows' houses, they make lengthy prayers, and my own religious false self kicked in. I'd had—I Many of you have heard my story about how in high school I found my identity through sports, you know, you're, 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 you're wanting to be impressive to your peers, and, and then Christ powerfully met me at the age of 16, and I... I had a glorious conversion and really a two-year honeymoon period with Jesus during that time where I just felt unconditionally loved and and beloved of God, and I connected with my true self. But then I got involved in ministry in my early 20s. And all of a sudden, the false self kicked in again, uh, where uh, we were going to have the largest youth group in Canada. We were going to be the most radical youth group in canada and i was going to be canada's best youth speaker but it was all for the glory of god of course right and i found out what as the as the cookie began to crumble i began to find find that i wasn't loving people very well in that system you can't love people you're trying to be trying to impress you can't love people when it's all about you and the other thing is you start favoring the wealthy and the strong and the good-looking and the talented because they're the ones that can help you achieve and success and oh yeah we help the poor but it's kind of in a patronizing way where we we don't give them equality at the table it was so awful so the false self ends up hurting people out of fear So the greatest gift that God ever gave me was my nervous breakdown. Okay, I almost died. (laughs) I was 30 years old. It was two years of sheer hell. It was the greatest gift that God ever gave me. He just stuck out his foot and tripped me and said, hey, this isn't going anywhere. And so if you're going through pain today, if there's some chiseling going on, whom he loves, he disciplines. And, you know, that connecting with that true self is worth it all. I wouldn't trade the last 20 years, last 25 years. Holy moly. It's been 30 years. My goodness. These last 30 years, I wouldn't trade it. It's been incredible. And uh, such a gift. So then... Last thing Jesus does, is, and and no other gospel puts these together like Mark does. He then says, Jesus sat down after this tirade against the Pharisees opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. Everybody's going, 'Whoa, whoa, whoa, right? But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, Worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what's Jesus doing here? So first of all, he attacks the religious false self, does some chiseling, but then he He pays attention to this this widow that one of the crowd that he just had mentioned was being oppressed by the religious elite. And he takes some time to notice her. And he's impressed. He's impressed by her. So the first practice to counter the false religious self is notice and celebrate what God notices. And what God's impressed with. Um, I love Henry Now's story about Adam. Have you anybody read that story, Henry Now? So he's 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 from the false self perspective, the most successful dude in the religious world. Henry Noun. He's got all these degrees. He's a professor at Yale, and a world-renowned speaker, prolific author. And right in the middle of it, he meets Jean Vanier. Anybody know Jean Vanier? the founder of L'Arche Communities. And he just, there's this unresistible invitation to come and live in Larch. So he ends up in Daybreak in Toronto. And there's 150 people in there, and probably a huge co- core of them are people with mental and physical disabilities. So Henry goes to live in this, okay, get, get this, this, with all this pedigree he's got, right? He goes to live in L'Arche, And his first assignment is to take care of Adam. And Adam is a 24-year-old who can't talk, who can't walk. And all he could do, Henry said, was follow me with his eyes. It was difficult to know for sure whether or not he actually even knew me. He was limited by a body that was misshapen, and he suffered from frequent epileptic seizures. At first with Adam, I'm so identifying with this story, by the way. At first with Adam, I was afraid. (laughs) And And so working with him was not easy for me. I would rather have been teaching at the university. Because I knew how to do that. I had no experience of caring so intimately for another human being. Don't worry, the other assistants assured me. Soon you'll really meet Adam, and then you'll know how to hold him and how to be with him. So I went to his room at 7 in the morning. I gently woke him up, helped him get up. I held him up and very carefully walked with him to the bathroom because I was frightened he might have a seizure. When I'd undressed him, I struggled to help him into the bathtub, as he was as heavy as I am. I started to pour water over him, wash him, shampoo his hair, take him out again to brush his teeth, comb his hair, return him to his bed. Then I dressed him and held him from behind as we walked together to the kitchen. When he was safely seated at the table, I offered him breakfast. He was able to lift the spoon to his mouth, mainly because Adam loved to eat and enjoyed all his meals to the full. We ate together, and I carefully watched him as he ate. It took a while. And I was aware that I had never sat silently watching with anyone, especially a person who took an hour to eat breakfast. But something transpired after two weeks. I was a little less frightened. After three or four weeks, it dawned on me that I was thinking a lot about Adam and looking forward to being with him. I realized something was happening between us, something intimate and beautiful that was of God. I don't know how to explain it very well, but God was speaking to me in a new way through this broken man. Little by little, I discovered affection in myself and came to believe that Adam and I belonged together. To put it simply, Adam silently spoke to me about God and God's friendship in a concrete way. First, he taught me, does this ring a bell? Beloved, that being is more important than doing. That God wants me to be with him and not do all sorts of things to prove I'm valuable. My life had been doing, 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 doing. I'm a driven person, wanting to do thousands and thousands of things that I can show somehow finally that I'm worthwhile. People said, hey, Henry, are you okay? But now here with, with Adam, I heard, I don't care what you do as long as you will be with me. It wasn't easy just to be with Adam. It isn't easy simply to be with a person and not do very much. Secondly, Adam taught me that the heart is more important than the mind. And now he has some beautiful insights about the heart and the mind. I mean, he, an, he had a brilliant mind. And you think... He doesn't dismiss the mind. But he says this, when the the physical, emotional, intellectual, or moral life commands all the attention, we're in danger of forgetting the primacy of the heart. The heart is that divine gift that allows us to trust, not just God, but also our parents, our family, ourselves, and our world. That's the danger of being a follower of Jesus, isn't it? We're called to trust like sheep among wolves. It's risky, It's painful sometimes. But it's a gift, he said, from God. Very small children seem to have a deep, intuitive knowledge of God, knowledge of the heart that sadly is often obscured and suffocated by the many systems of thought we gradually acquire. People with physical and mental disabilities easily can let their heart speak and thus reveal a mystical life, unteachable by many intellectually astute people. This is because the mystical life, the life of the heart, originates in God at the very beginning of our existence. Now, I want to stand up and read this, and I want to speak it over you. This is because the mystical life, the life of the heart, originates in God. At the very beginning of our existence, Richard Rohr calls it our own immaculate conception. (laughs) We are born in intimate communion with God who created us in love. And we will die in the loving arms of God who loves us with an everlasting love. Can you just receive that? We're already in ministry time here. I'm ashamed to say that it took me some time to move from thinking that Adam far from being primarily physically and mentally challenged and therefore not my equal was in fact my brother he was a full human being not my uh, so fully human that he was chosen by God to become the instrument of God's love to me Adam's vulnerability gave space for the heart Adam for me became just the heart in which God chose to dwell, in which he wanted to speak to those who came close to Adam's vulnerable heart. And in Adam, I learned God's, as we say in Latin America, God's preferential option for the poor because it's the poor that God chooses to bring us together. And finally, Adam taught me that doing things together is more important than doing things alone. That's what I learned from Adam, God's beloved son. And I, I lived at daybreak for 10 years before Adam died. So, the reason I read that story is because that's a story that the Jesus I know celebrates. He's not too impressed with our big churches and our money and our Even our signs and wonders and miracles. It's not. I've been through all that, folks. And I want to be real. I want us to be a church where we just allow that false crap. Our world is just starving for that, hungering for that. So I'll give you a couple more practices here. We're going to wrap it up. Number two, practice anonymous acts of kindness, service, and generosity. We all, I think, God created us to be thanked and acknowledged and and honored, and I think that's important. But as a follower of Jesus, as he said in Matthew 6, find things you do that nobody will ever know about. Acts of kindness. Acts of service. As I was, Dean was over doing some rentals on our house, and he was fixing some track lighting, and I, so I took the advantage of that to get up and uh, clean our bathroom fan which I do once a year, whether it needs it or not. And while I was up there, I saw all this dust on other things. So how many know when you start cleaning, you find out more, it's just like a... Right? And I thought, you know what? Nobody's ever going to notice whether I do this or not. But they'll notice if I don't. Right? And isn't so, so many of you are like that. I look at you parents, the way you lay down your life for your kids, the way that you serve the, your homestays and your household, and just love one another as a church, and the meal trains that you do and all. You do that. So I'm preaching to the choir. I understand that. And practice engaging the other. That is those who are different than you. When's the last time you talked to and had a good conversation with somebody that's LGBTQ, or of a different ethnicity, or a child, or someone who's got a disability, that makes you feel awkward, makes you feel uncomfortable, because you don't know what to do. I would say run towards that. Hey, I got to tell you what, this, I'll wrap it up with this, Chang Rang, the guy, that, the Korean guy, This is a true story. Nathan, this is true. This is Gordon-Conwell University tells this story. uh, Gordon-Conwell Theology School is kind of like a regent in in Canada. It's a wonderful institution. But they got to a point where they had 15% Koreans in the school. But when they had lunchtime, all the Koreans would sit at their own table and all the white guys and gals would sit at another table, in their own tables. So, of course, when you got 15% Koreans in the school, it becomes noticeable. So... The, the school that was administrated by white people and led by white people said you know, to the Korean people, you guys need to you know, mix and mingle a little more. Get, you know, sit at some white tables. So bless their hearts, they said, well, why don't some of you come sit at our table? And you know what the answer they got was? Oh, that would make us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> this is a theological school. It's in his book. So he published that. I went, oh, my God. God, help us. Do we know how much? So sometimes discomfort is not a bad thing. Okay, there's bad discomfort, but there's good discomfort. And I would say embrace that as a good practice to just chip away at that religious false self. Amen, Barb? Amen. Continually engaging practices that return to grace and remind us of who we are Serve to counter the religious self and the damage it causes. So just keep keep practicing. Let's pray. Would you let God just put his cheek to your cheek right now? Just like Hannah's cheek was to mine. Would you let him say, would you let God say to you, when I say him, I'm not saying God is male. I just feel I need to say that for somebody today. God transcends male and female. He made us in his image male and female. We use that pronoun because it came out of a patriarchal society. But when I say God, I mean God is father, mother, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, grandpa, grandma, even your own child. All that you've ever longed for, for family and intimacy and closeness. That one, that one that looks in your eyes and says, you are beloved. You are precious to me. Let him kiss you on the cheek. Let him say, I told you it would be okay. I told you, didn't I? I was there at the beginning. I was there at the beginning of your existence, and I told you it's going to be okay. It will be well. I know it's hard right now, But let me hold you. Let me hold you. It will be well. And you're never, never, never alone. Just receive love, love of God, love of your Father. Love your mother. Love of the living God, Yahweh. Would you lead us this week to be courageous? To go where it's uncomfortable? Where we don't know what we're doing? But just to remember you're there. You're you're with us. That's where you love to be. When nobody knew what to say with that widow, you were there. You were there with her. Help us to love and engage the other. That's your heart. come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Why don't we stand together? That bird wants in. Bird it wants
1: <laughs>
0: Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> awesome. We have to get him in the worship band. and you can play some rhythm for us, eh, Lynn? <laughs> uh, well, let me bless you. If you want prayer, if the Lord's spoken to you about some of these things, please uh, take some time. And get someone to pray for you. We can pray for you at the front or get a, a friend you trust. Pray for you. So, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his, con- his, his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. And give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's coffee at the back. Visit Ming-